This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University Milken School of Public Health. My name's Megan Burton, your host, and this is The Co-op. Hope you like it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the fourth episode of The Co-op. I want to thank you all so much for being here with me. Crazy how time flies when you're having fun. And after today, we only have one more episode together. Again, I'm your host, Megan Burton, and let's jump into today's topic, which will be developing a positive culture. Okay, so before we get into defining a culture, we need to first understand how to get there. Without leadership, you have nothing. If you're like most coaches, you have a couple years of playing sports under your belt. But the difference between an athlete and a coach is coaches have to lead through others. You can no longer play the sport you once loved. You need to help your players play that sport. Leadership is the one skill you need to use now to get this done. So how do we define leadership? Leadership is defined as giving a team direction or vision of what can be. And your job is to help lead and guide them into making that vision a reality. A coach's leadership role will develop a team culture. To cultivate this culture, you need to know how to select, motivate, reward, retain, and unify members of your team. This can be on and off the field. Your team can include players, assistants, managers, and even parents. To be an excellent leader, aka an excellent coach, you need to develop interpersonal skills that will move people to make action. Communication skills are essential to being a good leader, and lucky for you, the next episode will be all about those. If you want to be a successful coach, you you need to make these things happen. Great leaders create an environment where people feel safe and secure share their vulnerability to build trust and establish purpose and direction so i'm going to go into these three things a little bit more to give you some background but as a leader it is your responsibility to lay the foundation for the culture of your team Team culture can be defined as the way things are done on the team. The social architecture that you create nurtures the team's physique. See your role in the team's culture. Your athletes will end up leading by example. When they don't know what to do, they will look towards you for guidance and norms every single day. To create an environment where people feel psychologically safe and secure, it is important that you don't participate or accept any negativity. Research has shown that one bad apple or toxic employee can bring down an entire team. If you hear or see any action that is in opposition of the environment you are trying to cultivate, address that individual quickly and quietly. Don't ever ignore your team culture because it is your job to cultivate one that will lead to success. If your team culture is not adequately developed, the team will function below performance capabilities and widespread dissatisfaction is likely among the team. 
Poor team culture occurs when conflicts arise between athletes and coaches or among the athletes themselves, when athletes feel alienated, when coaches exert too much control, or when feelings of utility and frustration reach a threshold. Team culture will always be more powerful than a team's talent. Rainer Martins, a respected sports psychologist and longtime coach, also an author of the textbook Successful Coaching, gives John Wooden, a former UCLA men's basketball coach legend, as an example for this. His last national championship team was deemed as a roster with weaker talent and ability than other teams across the country. But what they had was a strong team culture that led them to their national championship title that year. John Wooden, just like many other successful coaches, was a leader. A leader should create mutual vulnerability among team members. There are several ways that you can conduct this. One, force collaboration amongst your athletes. Two, encourage your athletes to talk to one another directly. Three, reward and recognize collaboration. And four, build trust. When forcing collaboration, have team members work together to solve problems or complete a project. Encouraging people to talk to one another directly and resisting being a proxy for critical feedback will build an environment of peer coaching. Drive for share outcomes that celebrate team successes, then reward and recognize their collaboration. Then create opportunities for people to build trust with each other as people, not just teammates. For example, build trust among team members by allowing them to resolve conflicts among themselves without you being a mediator. Over time, this will create a group of people who trust one another, which will create a cohesive team culture. Defining this team culture is really hard to do. Few are able to make it happen. Many watch things happen, and the vast majority have no idea what happened. But what does it take to build a positive team culture? Lucky for you, I'm going to tell you. Purpose, aka direction, aka your coaching philosophy, which, pop quiz, are made up of what two things again? Oh right, your major objectives, or the things you value and want to achieve, and your beliefs, or any principles that help you achieve your objectives, aka coaching style, coaching objectives, etc., which were all episodes before this one, so if you want to learn about those, go back. But before implementing values you think will be good for the team, Think about some of these questions. Number one, why are we a team? Why does this team exist? Number two, what are the advantages of being on a team? And number three, what can we do because we are working together? And then you can implement these values. You can't just bring them up in a meeting or make it the team's mantra. You also need to participate in it. For example, you want your athletes to have open communication with you, but you don't do the same with them. Your athletes learn to lead by example. If you aren't communicating with them about team-related things or even things that are happening behind the scenes in your life, how do you expect them to communicate with you? 
if you get upset about something an athlete has brought to your attention, maybe criticism, and yell at them, how do you expect your team to communicate with you? Communicate effectively with your team and implement this process into your team's daily life. Don't just write a word on a piece of paper every day. Participate in the activity. Communication is something we will all learn more about in the next episode on this podcast. But if your team starts noticing your communication, you'll start noticing the same actions being reciprocated. Your team structure becomes your team culture. It is the small actions that you do on a daily slash weekly basis that make up your team culture. Things including the way you speak to each other, the way decisions are made, and the way you run meetings. Analyze your answers to these very questions. Culture comes from shared experiences. Some actions will be big and others small, but the effect will still be the same. The question you should ask yourself is how can I make people feel like they are valued and important parts of this team? As a leader, you have significant influence over your team's culture. You're the one that has the power to institute policies and procedures that will help make your team happy, productive, and successful. Dawn Staley is the perfect example for this. She's the head coach of the women's basketball team at the University of South Carolina currently. She built a championship culture and was named one of the world's 50 greatest leaders by Fortune. In an interview with Molly Fletcher recently, actually, Staley explains how she reached this championship culture by providing a vision and gaining trust. She explains that gaining trust amongst your team and your recruits, quote, is easy to do when you're speaking from the heart about what you see for this program and what you can do for the athlete, end quote. To create a community around the team, Dawn made the fans a part of the women's basketball team family, allowing them an opportunity in the decision-making process and talking to them like they were part of the family. Two small actions that she does on a weekly and daily basis that every coach can do to create a better team culture in and around them. She tries to build a bond through constant communication with her team members because she believes that, quote, we lose a lot of things in the way we communicate or the way we don't communicate, end quote. Keeping constant communication with them might feel like a little too much, but if you don't, someone else will. Someone maybe that could pull the player away from the team and the sport. It is your job to be there for your athletes in all realms of their life, not just sport. Many successful coaches, including Don Staley, build room for individualism and share the responsibility of the team with the athletes. There are six important components to team culture that she shares amongst these people. Team traditions, which include building not just a winning tradition, but also a team that never quits, or a team that cares about all of its athletes, as well as rituals and how others look at you. Two, basic operating procedures how athletes are trained, recruited, rewarded, and prepared for competition, 
Management of information. Who is the proxy for information? How is information passed on from coaches to athletes? Do you have captains? The nature of the sport, number four. Is it an individual sport or a team sport? Is it contact or no contact sport? The team culture needs to be suited for the type of sport you coach. Power, influence, and status structure of the team. Do you retain most of the power? Do you share it? What role do you give your captains? And finally, six, the leadership style of yourself. Something we explained in the last episode of the podcast and the most important to building a positive team culture. All six of these components will help you better understand team culture. But how do you analyze where your stands right now? That question will lead us into our activity. So I want you guys at home to list A, some signs that indicate when your team culture is in trouble, and B, some signs indicating when your team culture is doing well. Now, I want everyone to pause the episode here for about five minutes and brainstorm some signs, about three of each. Did you pause it? Did you create the list? I hope you did. Because thinking about these things and coming up with them on your own will help you better analyze where your team stands currently. But if you didn't, I still have some answers for you. Not all of them, just some of them. So here are the things I've noticed on the teams I've been a part of and ones that Martin's textbook points out. So for A, three signs that indicate your culture is in trouble. One of the signs may be there are conflicts among team members. Two, there's little response during team meetings from athletes and other assistant coaches. Three, You feel uncomfortable communicating with assistants and athletes, and they are with you. Now, what are three signs your culture is thriving? One, there's a sense of confidence and pride amongst your team and its members. Two, higher satisfaction rates among coaches and athletes. And three, increased performance. If you notice any of these negative signs, you might need to start changing your culture, which won't be easy. You can't change it overnight or within a few weeks. It's a gradual process that takes quite some time. Don't be the coach that notices these problems and think just one team meeting to address them will be the solution. I promise you, it won't. You must look hard to discover what is interfering with getting the team to a positive team culture, and then make a strategic plan to remove that obstacle or build the right system. It is vital that you involve the other team members in the team process because they are a part of the culture too. To analyze team culture a little more, I wanted to bring in a professional that coached in collegiate sports for many years. Her name is Dr. Pat Sullivan. Sullivan has worked as a head volleyball coach for the University of Nebraska and George Washington University, as well as a swim coach assistant for the University of Nebraska. Now she can be seen in the Hall of Fame at George Washington University. She has many titles, including A-10 Conference Volleyball Coach of the Year, 
but her favorite title is that that's given to her by her athletes after their volleyball career is over. To speak more on team culture, here's Pat Sullivan. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, <laughs> no problem. No problem. Um, yeah. So, uh, so let me dive in. Yeah. You, you asked, you asked the question, uh, you know, you, for, you wanted to know something. It looks like you wanted, I'm looking over here yeah. at my screen with your questions on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you wanted to know something about my background. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm just going to do a, I'm going to go A through L here awesome. in you know, in a fairly compact period of time here. So, uh, the, my primary sport for coaching, um, was, uh, was volleyball. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. coached in a while, so yeah. a whole bunch of questions here. We can just leave out, uh, <laughs> what level do I currently coach at? Yeah. I, I coached for a couple of years in high school. Then I coached at Smith college. Um, and I coached at the university of Nebraska and then I coached mm-hmm. at George Washington university. And now I don't coach. Um, I've coached everything from older women to collegiate coaches to, or a collegiate athletes to uh i've never coached really uh, on the youth sport level i don't think i'm trying to remember no i don't think so um i coached swimming at the university of nebraska for a little while i thought that you know you might might be interested in that um and it was uh uh you know talk about two different sports to work with and um so having having that information knowing uh knowing some swimming not just not the sport itself but working with the working with the student athletes was uh, different from yeah. working with uh, working with volleyball student athletes, and um, so that I guess I bring that to the table as well. Yeah. And uh, levels, so I've talked to you about levels a little bit. Um, did I receive any training before becoming a coach? Degrees, qualifications, and observing others. Um, I think that's a that's a particular passion point for me. Um, I'm uh, this coaching education. Uh, I developed a coaching education program uh, where I live now uh, at, at the uh, at a college called the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, a program that still runs, even though I'm not running running it anymore. Yeah. Spent uh, several years with that program, and uh, one of my particular pet peeves, if if you will, is the lack of coaching education um, mm-hmm. on all levels. To be yeah. quite honest, not everyone on the college level yeah. is uh, has coaching education in any um, in any uh, formal sense mm-hmm. in their background. A lot of coaching education is about what you learned from the people you worked with, uh, and so the assumption there is that you'll. And this is a huge assumption: um, is that when I have been coached by someone, I will take all the best of that person's. Yeah attributes, uh, whatever they knew, I'm going to bring that to the table and not bring to the table all the, um, all the negative things, uh, mm-hmm. that I learned. Uh, so we make a lot of assumptions in that regard and that leads to a particular leadership component that I can talk about in just, uh, in just a few minutes. But the, um, so I think that there's a real, I think we have a real lack of required, uh, formal coaching education, um, I would call like the, you know, the, the coursework that you take with Professor Solano as being that's formal education. Yeah. And uh, and I think there's a there's a real place for that. There's that that's there's a space for that to to learn not just what she thinks about coaching or not just what her experiences were in coaching. But what do we know? What do we, what, and what does research tell us? about what works and, uh, and what doesn't work. And uh, clearly that, that field is wide yeah. open and we don't do a good enough job of requiring, of taking the people who in some ways are more influential 
than anybody else in the kid's life, no matter what the age is, by the way. When I worked with 60-year-olds, you know, I was still a very influential person in that, but more influential than I wanted to be in those people's lives. And so what, you know, what should I know? I I shouldn't be like a conspiracy theorist (laughs) uh, going in to talk to, because they were good. They would listen to what I said, uh, which was astonishing um, on some level. So anyway, so uh, yes. Uh, degree. Do I have a? I have an undergraduate degree in uh, physical education. My master's degree was from Smith College in uh, um, in in. I'm trying to remember what they even called it. It was sports science. Okay. Um, and my doctoral work is in um, higher education administration, with an with an odd mm-hmm. emphasis in the area of college student development. And I particularly chose to relate that to uh, to student to students in the coaching um, in the coaching realm. Uh, so those are, and uh, and yet and lots of formal education and um, some of the things that I did. I'm just going to touch on observing others yeah. um, because a couple of the most important things that I think I did in my coaching career. And I was already at Nebraska. And was that Nebraska? I think I was at Nebraska when I did this, uh, was to take uh, take a couple weeks off and go observe um, the guy who was coaching at the University of Southern California at the time, Ari Selinger, um, who was a former national team coach in volleyball. Uh, I, I just asked him, you, you know, coaches get around, we go to clinics, we go, you, you run into people and you you meet people. And I just asked him if I could go observe his, observe him in uh, yeah. early season, really preseason coaching at, uh, at USC, yeah. uh, at that time. And that those were some of the best, those, those are some of the best days of learning and coaching. I could ask him anything after practice, uh, and did, and he, uh, there was just a lot of learning going on. So a lot of, not just observation because observation only goes so far, mm-hmm. right? Unless you ask the question, like, yeah. why'd you do that? What, you know, what was, what yeah. led you to do that? What did you learn from doing that? Um, why did you work with this athlete different yeah. than this athlete? And so on. So there was a lot of, it was a lot of good learning. And I would encourage anybody to do that, by the way, just yeah. take, just ask, yeah. uh, just ask to go shadow someone. And then, uh, and not just for a minute, you never mm-hmm. know whether you're getting them on your, their best day or their worst day. Yeah. Right. So yeah, get them over a time period and, uh, and then ask, ask questions. So yes. Um, so I received, I've received lots of training in, uh, in my background, many, 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 many workshops, clinics mm-hmm. did like a million workshops, clinics. Yeah. Uh, I think I had a fairly traditional coaching world, uh, in that, in that respect. Um, what are some of my achievements, achievements that stand out? Okay. So really, achievements in coaching to me if if your achievements aren't measured by what the in my case student athletes Mm -hmm. say after they're done with their with their careers their playing careers if it's not measured by that then there isn't anything else for me to measure it by lots of wins I have all that stuff under my belt but what's most meaningful is what those people say now and what they did then with their lives and um and interestingly to me was you know what they did uh, primarily related to sport but just what they did with their lives and um and how important they thought playing volleyball was no yeah uh and that and and obviously that that uh to me that's what matters no yeah 
So one of the most important aspects of coaching, um, if you want to be a successful coach, is to build a positive team culture. Martin's in his successful coaching textbook uh, talks about how coaches need to be a leader to cultivate this kind of environment. There are several factors he states that show what leaders do when building a positive team environment. One, provide direction. Two, build a physical, psychological, and social, socially safe environment. Three, instill values. Four, motivate members of their group to pursue goals of their group. Five, confront members of an organization when problems arise. And six, communicate. So to start off, I want to ask you, how do you define leadership? Oh, boy. Uh, so I think uh, an easy way to understand leadership uh, is to look at it from an influence perspective. So if I am going to be a good leader, to what extent am I capable of influencing you to do something that needs to happen? Mm -hmm. Needs to happen defined by me, defined by the group, defined by... Uh, so if I'm, if I'm going to lead, that means I need to be able to influence you to move you in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of ways to do that. Uh, I, I, again, I'm going to speak to you from my own personal, yeah. uh, this, there's personal opinion involved here because I, I've done, I've written in this area and I think that they're one of the, there are strong ways to learn how to be leaders and there are more passive ways to learn how to be leaders. And uh, my own personal opinion is that uh, the most passive way to be a leader is to lead by example, yeah. which is something that people will say, many people will say, you know, my, mm -hmm. my preference is to lead by example. And my reaction to that is on a team, everyone, should be leading by example. There's no question about that. That's every single person uh, who's affiliated with the team, uh, the, the players, the coaches, the, mm -hmm. the, the managers, the support staff, the, everyone should be leading by, everyone should try to be influencing the other people in the group by functioning in a way that would positively move them forward. Yeah. And that's what, so leading by example to me means that you're not, uh, you're not being direct. You're not, you're not s spelling out exactly what you want to see happen mm -hmm. next. And the flaw in leading by example is that you make the assumption that the person you're trying to influence is actually watching you, yeah. is actually open to being influenced. Um, and that's just flat out not the case. Yeah. Maybe most of the time uh, they're worrying about something else. They're thinking about something else. Mm -hmm. They don't even recognize that what you're, what you're trying to do is to influence them in a positive way. Leading by example, that to me is a, it's, it's not completely ineffective. It just doesn't have, uh, just doesn't have the strength of saying, if, if I really want you right now to go have lunch, it's time to go have lunch, Megan, uh, then I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to go have lunch myself. <laughs> Yes. And then see if maybe you pick up on that and decide, okay, I mean, it's possible yeah. that you would get that and think that that was a good idea. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that you'd go off and, you know, play racquetball for an hour. I don't know. Uh, if I really want that to happen, I'm going to say, geez, you know, this is a good time of day uh, to have lunch. Uh, let's go have lunch, Megan. 
Yeah. And, uh, and so we're going to be more direct about it. So I think there's, um, there are, uh, leadership is about trying to get people to move from point A to point B, mm-hmm. um, in, in sometimes in very difficult circumstances and learning how to do that in as direct a manner as possible without disrupting all the rest of the team culture uh, that that's going on is is tricky. Uh, it makes the assumption that we're not all sensitive kids who are going to be offended if I look at you cross-eyed, uh, and that's that's a part of the team culture. That I think a good positive team culture supports mm-hmm. our ability to be effective leaders, effective leaders within the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's. Uh, in some ways, I think there's there are differences between leadership within the team and leadership from the coach to the to the athletes, um, and in part that's just because of the power play that you get to have as a coach. I get to say, I get to say, Megan, it's time for you to go to lunch. Go. Yeah. Don't come back until I tell you to. I get to say that. Yeah. Uh, athlete to athlete uh, may require different. Uh, different kind, a different level of communication, different kind of communication. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, that's, that's a part of the, and how you develop that is, uh, now I use the example in, in volleyball of, uh, so if you and I are the primary passers in a particular server receive rotation, yeah. um, we, we have responsibility. We have responsibility to, we got to get the ball up, got to get mm-hmm. the ball to the setter on that, in that rotation now and we can't it's not going to be it's not going to work for if the two of us are primary passers together and you shank the ball into the bleachers on that serve receive or you do something we don't want you to do on that serve receive uh i don't want to say i have to find the balance between saying you know it's okay megan we'll get the next one and grow up megan you know, you're a passer, yeah. you're a primary passer, pass the ball, mm-hmm. put the ball in the setter's hands, uh, as opposed to saying, maybe it's okay, Megan, you know, we'll be, it's it, no big deal. It is the big deal. Yeah. You know, you just cost us a point. Yeah. So, uh, and so our ability to communicate when you talk to whoever it is, however it is you're dealing with communication next in podcast five, mm-hmm. communication is critical, the ability to be able to say directly what I mean and what I need to have happen yet as peers uh, is uh, is crucial. Yeah. Um, no doubt. I'm, Pat Summit, uh, you, you might be familiar with the name, Pat yes, Summit. I am. Um, she, she, um, one of the things she did that I thought was absolutely fabulous, um, coaches go into timeouts and they say, they talk a lot about they sometimes talk a lot about uh, what we need to do differently during the next stretch of time. And one of the things she did extraordinarily well, I thought was that she, she would, she would make that point. She would make whatever, whatever comments she needed to make, but she would also say to you, Megan, here's what you need to do. You personally have to do this in the next 30 seconds or we're going to, or, and, and she put it on you because it is about you. Yeah. Whatever was, whatever was specific to you, she actually stated. Um, and I, and that's, uh, that's a, a, a method of communication, a direct 
method of communication that let you know exactly what you needed to do as opposed to the, hmm, I wonder if she's talking to me or she must be talking to the persons who's sitting next to me because surely, I mean, I think I did what I was supposed to do in this. uh, I I 100% agree with what you're saying and I have seen that from Pat's summit too. Um, And you actually just with answering the first question, you also answered the second question, which is how do you provide direction to your athletes, which you just said direct. um, I want to be direct with my athletes uh, to provide direction to them. So, um, but for the next question, as a leader, how do you address the physical, psychological, and emotional needs of your athletes? Okay. That's a book. (laughs) And uh, it's a lot. If you just want to like give an example Okay. Um, uh, let's go with, um, you're, you're clearly, uh, you're out of sorts in some way. Uh, you have, a you have a persistent back injury. Yeah. Um, that is, that impacts everything else that you do. So you're physically hurting and, uh, and that's keeping you from doing your best at whatever it is you're trying to do. And you're trying to not show the pain yeah. because you know that, Nobody wants to see that, um, but it's it's impacting what you do. It's impacting your ability to communicate well with others. It's impacting everything, yeah. uh, and that to me requires uh, a lot of one-on-one with you, talking mm-hmm. to you about how, how, basically how we're going to get through this. How are we going to? How are we going to manage this physically? What are we doing specifically to? Uh, to manage the physical pain in this case. Yeah. And in some cases, we're doing everything we can. We're doing all the right things and we're still uh, hurting. Okay, yeah. so now that's influenced me emotionally. It's influenced me psychologically. Yeah. How do I how do I get over that? And if we could answer that question, by the way, specifically, yeah. um, accurately, uh, the Every coach in the universe would want to know exactly how to manage that situation. That's a mess. To me, that's a massaging, not a literal massaging, but a massaging the uh, day-to-day functioning uh, with that athlete Mm -hmm. that, that allows us to, okay, what are we going to do for the next 10 minutes? Yeah. You know, what are we going to do for the next 10 minutes so that I, so that you don't hurt yourself more, that you're maybe able to contribute something that's going to make you feel a little bit better about what you're doing Mm -hmm. so that you don't negatively influence the person who's next to you. Sometimes just like dealing with the physical injury, which is sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, what am I going to do for the next 10 minutes? Um, Setting those kinds of goals are the really, really, really short-term goals along with the clearly in the long term, we want to get, we want to be better. I want to be a hundred percent. Sure. Everybody wants to be a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes, particularly in really tough physical circumstances, it's helpful to set five or 10 minute mm-hmm. goals out of an hour and a half or two hour practice to make it so that I can um, yeah. take care of myself take, and take care of my teammates yeah. uh, at the same time and, and also try to figure out a way to get better. Yeah. How do you um, make yourself approachable? would you say to your athletes? Really good question because uh, so many people, uh, grad students, um, 
sometimes athletes have said, you know, I'm, I'm saying my door is open and, you know, I want you to come and talk to me about anything. And then later they say to me, uh, Hey, I didn't think I could talk to you about much of anything, you know, because I don't, you know, sometimes you are, you just have to keep opening the door. You just have to keep opening the door and letting people say whatever it is they need to say, Mm -hmm. knowing that you're the bound, the boundaries around that communication are going to be protected. They're going to be sealed. They're going to be, with the exception of if somebody's going to do damage to themselves or others, uh, you know, you're not going to share that information yeah. with anyone. Um, and, and that's a work, that's a work in progress, uh, nonstop doesn't end. Uh, there's gotta be a starting point and then you have to behave in a way that backs that up so that I've just told you that I'm approachable yeah. Now I'm going to ask you to communicate with me in a minute that shows I, I mean that mm-hmm. and I'm going to do the same thing again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and we'll get better at it and you have to respect me. I have to respect you and maybe we've got four years together. Maybe we've got one year together. We have to make progress on that by consistently behaving in a consistent manner over time. Yeah. That's how we trust anything, right? Yeah. It's a consistent behavior. You, you can't tell me, you can't tell me you're going to be approachable today and then shut the door on me tomorrow. So yeah, no, definitely. I that's actually, my answer to that. Yeah. I actually spoke about it in this podcast where I said, um, one of the things that great leaders do is share vulnerability and build trust amongst athletes. And that's something you kind of touched on to mm-hmm. make yourself more approachable, which I think is really great. Um, so what values are the most important to you and those you want to instill within your athletes? How about if I just pick one? You can pick one. Uh, Because there's a whole, there's going to be a whole set, right? Of things and values that I might have that will help describe my team culture, if you will. Uh, But, you know, at, at some basic level, we have to be about trying to move forward as a group, as individuals and as a group. Mm-hmm. I have to agree that I'm going to be, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get better mm-hmm. uh, every day. I have to make yeah. progress. And uh, an interesting, uh, you know, my, my academic field is sports psychology. So, yeah. I mean, I kind of, and I worked with student athletes at GW for a while. And um, the one of the things that we would do as a team exercise was to try to figure out what that meant. What did it, what very specifically did that mean in a practice situation or in a competitive situation to uh, work hard to get better? What does work hard even mean? Yeah. What, what, and very specifically, and that's not a, it's not a, it sounds like it's an easy question. It's, it's really not. It's hard for a group. It was always hard when I worked with groups to, for, to get them to clearly define that. What does that mean? How will I know that we all did this? How will I know? Uh, we started practice at two o'clock this afternoon. We ended at four. How do I know? Uh, how do I measure that? How do I know that I worked harder today than I did yesterday? Yeah. And, and, and letting them answer that, yeah. making them answer mm-hmm. question, uh, and, and what is my responsibility with my teammates to make, to, to put them in a position to 
to work harder? How can I help them work harder? It's the old, you know, when in volleyball, if you're a, if you're doing a hitting drill and you've got a blocker on the other side of the net or a couple of blockers and the blockers want to make the hit. Sometimes this happened in, uh, uh, I was a volunteer coach for a year um, at uh, what's the National Cathedral School for Girls. Totally different story. Be a good, that's, we don't need to go down that route. But one of the things that was interesting, so I'm working with maybe ninth, 10th, 11th grade or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and I had no particular responsibility, you know, except to, to try to move them forward. Yeah. And they, uh, the blockers would sometimes back off the hitter so that the hitter would look better in that drill. Let the hitter put the ball down, not work as hard as they could. And I thought, what is going on here? If, if we don't, as teammates working against each other, yeah. with and against each other, if we don't work as, if we don't work as hard as we can, if I don't give you my toughest block, yeah to push you as a hitter, where are we? You know, we, you have to be able to do that. You can't, you can't, uh, another example was that, I don't know, uh, was a basketball drill, uh, running, uh, what do you call those drills? Uh, line, some line drills, uh, uh, what do you, what do you call those things? You know, anyway, so watching the kid who always wins in that drill, always beats everybody else back off so that somebody else can win so that that somebody else looks better trying to be a good friend trying to be a good and a, you know and I'm, I'm watching this happen and thinking what this is and that has to be taught that has that has to be taught at some level it doesn't come naturally uh to people to press on their teammates to to so that we all get better but so i'm going back okay. learning how to define what hard work is yeah. i we i Coach Solano and I have worked together before on this, yeah. getting coaches to define what hard work means on their team no, yeah. is not easy. It's crazy that you say that because the first interview that I had with Norm Wright, um, he's a swim coach at mm-hmm. my local club down in Richmond, Virginia. And he talked about one of his main values is he wants to create hard workers. Like he doesn't want to create great swimmers. He wants them to be hard workers because that will be with them the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Great point. Mm-hmm. Great point. But I, when you talk to him next, ask him what that means. Okay, I definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with the many years of coaching you have under your belt, um, what have you learned uh, best motivates your athletes and what tactics works best with the current age group you work with, which um, you're not. Okay. I don't work with anybody right now, um, which is uh, really delightful. Um, So, uh, you know, what, what I, what I learned over time was uh, that is, that is one of the most complicated Mm -hmm. things to manage um, in the, in the universe. It, it just is. It's one of the reasons if you went back and looked at, um, looked at the study of motivation in a sport environment. Uh, earliest studies of motivation didn't have anything to do with sport. You know, like how do you get the rats to eat the stuff that, you know, that you're putting in the, so, uh, but once, once wasn't until really the early sixties or so when 1960s when this was like a, a whole, like three generations ago, right. Um, when, when uh, researchers started looking at what what does that mean and how uh, what is motivation and how do you get people to do what we expect them to do, 
we went through maybe 40 years of uh, research on that before that really started to spread to the business world. I mean, if you were able to just go to a bookstore and look at the history of, you know, motivation in sport kind of preceded motive the, all the work that's been done on motivation in the business world. Uh, as soon as people started to look at, uh, get the, get the uh, connection between um, the study of organizational behavior in the business world and the study of sport teams in the athletic world, the connection between those two things uh, really spurred tons of research about, uh, in, about motivation and how you get people to do things. The biggest connector there was in, that in the sport world, typically uh, the athlete wants to play. They want to be, you know, they, they want to be, they want to get a starting position. They want to be a contributor. They want to be, they want to be a part of the group. And that's, uh, and on some level, what spurs them on, what provides the opportunity to get them to do the kinds of things they need to do in order to get better. In the business world, sometimes that's true and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes in the business world, that person is really, they're trying to collect a paycheck or they're trying to do the least amount they can do mm-hmm. to be able to get through the work day. It's a very, and imagine, you know, take that, switch that around. If you're in practice as an athlete, and you're trying to do the least amount of work you can do to get through practice. Yeah. Okay, this is not this is not working. So uh, you know how do we so so and and that's just anathema to the whole sport environment. In sport, we we on some level, at some very basic level, we understand that we got to we have to do something here yeah. <laughs> to make ourselves better as a group. So um, and then that's different for every person. So this looks to me like a chess game on some level. And it looks to me like the development of a, if you were a, if you were a quilter yeah. and I'm not a quilter, I don't know anything about quilting, except I, I know what they are. <laughs> uh, so if you're, you, 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 you've got these moving pieces, you've got these moving pieces. Uh, things don't move in a quilt. That was a bad analogy. So you, but you've got this thing that you're this group that's trying to move forward right yeah and Megan's Megan's okay today Megan's really on top of things she's got it going but her teammate this guy over here has slipped out he's not how do I bring him back in how do I move him in the direct and while still bringing these other people in at this and this has to do with who you're competing against what you did to prepare what you plan to do to prepare uh, what you like, what you don't like. I love this drill. I hate this drill. Do you organize drills so that, uh, so that, you know, in swimming, do you organize, do you organize what the team is doing or what the individual is doing on a particular day because that's what they like or because what you think that's best for them or they're, they're just, there are a million questions to answer. And so the coach and, and the coach has, let's say 20 athletes they're working with. So the coach is constantly trying to figure out what's going to get you today. What's going to get you, not just today, you know, what's going to get you through the next six minutes, you know, in this drill, uh, which is different from what's going to get this person through and this person and this person. And how do I make, how do I make this animal move forward? Yeah. I, if, and again, you know, people who make this look easier, easy, you know, I'm thinking about, I can't help but thinking about Brenda Freeze last night. University of Maryland is women's basketball team lost a game that just uh, you could the 
easy thing to say is that they shouldn't have lost. Well, you did. So, you know, what happened there and what were the motivational factors mm-hmm. that came into play uh, that helped that happen? Was it motivation? Yeah. Was it purely execution? Does execution survive in a bubble all by itself or is it constantly influenced by motivation? Yeah. I and mean, You know, if you want to, if you want to look at research on what makes people do things, you know, there's, yeah. there's just, there are a million variables, literally. Mm-hmm. out there that influence that. And those are ch- constantly changing. What made you do what you're doing today is likely to be different yeah. than what's, so, so we can't say, oh, this is what gets to Megan. Mm-hmm. Got it. Nailed it. And, uh, and because it's going to be different tomorrow, maybe different at noon. Uh, so, so, uh, so what, that's really what I learned. And what I learned over time was that what I thought was a really simple thing and early on, like when I was coaching in high school, early on, I remember thinking, if, I, if I'm just enthusiastic, my enthusiasm will spread. They'll all do what I want them to do. Mm-hmm. And life will be great. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, that carries you. That, that can, if you don't do those kinds of things, yeah. of course, that, you know, that will work against you. But it, it, that's not enough to, it's enough to take you uh, through a short season with good athletes <laughs> and yeah. weak opponents. Um, mm-hmm. So that works out pretty well. But, you know, once that changes, it's a, it, what I learned was it just got harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And the only consistent thing that I needed to live with was knowing that it was going to change. And so that ha- made me have to go nonstop. Yeah. I've got to figure you out today. I've got to figure you out today. I've got to yeah. see that something's not right. What, what am I going to do? Yeah. It's got to be a constant, constantly changing variables. Yeah. Um, no, makes so sense. in a game that is influenced and in, in games, at least in swimming, at least in swimming, when uh, the, those, those, the, the, the changing variables were really uh, related to, to any particular event, uh, the conditions were a little bit more controllable than yeah. than in volleyball, where you've got I'm going to put, have six people on the court at the same time, and there's six people playing against you. Mm-hmm. All their motivational variables are influencing yeah. you. Um, so, you know, it's a you got to love it. Yeah, uh, that's what I really learned was you have to love the inconsistency <laughs> of trying to make something constant and consistent. Oh yeah, definitely. It sounds like a lot, and I'm really looking forward to looking into it for our next episode. Um, so how have you confronted conflicts in the past, in practice or at games? I, I hate conflict, um, so I try to, avo- you know, I, I try to avoid it, try to organize the situation so it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time as you're, that's a really, it's a communication issue yeah. uh, as far as I'm concerned, and if you can't if you can't, if, if the situation is there, you didn't reorganize. I mean, there so often you can reorganize the circumstances to avoid the conflict, even while you're in the middle of it. Um, if that's not possible, uh, then it's, I think it's critical to immediately get to where's this coming from and how do we diffuse this, uh, whoever it's, whoever it involves. And that entails typically, stopping things, whether it's stopping and doing a one-on-one or stopping, stopping the team and getting that information out, 
uh, whatever that you have to, you have to confront, you have to, Yeah. you can't, you can't, you cannot like it, Mm -hmm. but you have to be good at it because it's going to happen. Conflict is inevitable. If you don't have any conflict, then you don't, I don't even know what's, what's that like to not have conflict. You have to have conflict yeah. uh, to be alive. So yeah. I think it's like our human nature to just have conflict just arises. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of touched about, or talking about communication. Um, how do you communicate with the team and athlete, your coaching staff, and how does it differ among those groups? And how do you pass along certain information from coaches to athletes? Kind of a big question. Well, and I think I, you know, I, you I touched, spoke a little bit yeah. to that, you know, qu- quite some time ago, though, it, it, dealing with, you know, dealing with athletes is frequently very different from dealing with a staff and from dealing with um, people you're working for. Yeah. Uh, the, those are the, I think the extent to which we can be direct and learn how to not take things personally yeah. Uh, is um, is really really helpful. It's hard. It's hard for people. I, it's it, people take things personally. They we're people, mm-hmm. um, and it's hard to separate those things out. But um, I, and there's there's and there's a time crunch. That's there's that's another huge element. It's it's. I can remember having conversations with athletes about the fact that you know I don't basically we don't have all day here we don't have i can't we can't we don't have 48 hours to iron this out yeah tell me now what's happening so that we can begin to move forward just give me a let's get it started some way whatever it is whatever it is and um and there's some things that just there's some levels of things that just have to be done i mean, think about it like yeah. practice starts at two uh mm-hmm. Okay, so it's two. We start practice. That's a very simple level of it. But communicating how to teach somebody something different about a skill is much more complicated. And so how, how you work through that may be a little different. It's not, it may not be as, as cut and dry. Um, there's a whole level of trust that has to go on with, uh, with teaching somebody something new. I've been doing something the same way for the last 10 years. You're asking me to do something different. I'm likely to uh, not be at my best when I first start to change the way you're asking me to change my stroke. Um, so how's that? You know, how is that going to influence the way you hear the information that I'm trying to share? It's it's a it like like the other um, sort of psychosocial elements of coaching or of communication or of living. Uh, it, it, you know, it's uh, that's something that needs to be massaged over time. It's um, uh, you'll when you and I learn how to communicate well together, uh, and that doesn't end. By the way, we don't we didn't learn it on Tuesday, and now we're now we're done. I can move on to somebody else. That's we constantly have to work with that. Yeah. Um, and, and once once we do that, that's and only then is when we can actually move ourselves forward so how is not a how is different for every person um in the in the the trickiest sense uh but it's uh on the simplest level the practice starts at two level there are things that you know i'm gonna say you have to there are things i'm gonna say or i'm not gonna ask any questions there's no debate going on this is this is how this is gonna be i'm Mm -hmm. gonna say this and you're gonna say okay yeah and then do it 
and that's just the way it is. Um, that's, that's, that's the easy part. Yeah, no, definitely. And I feel like communication is really complex and, um, like I said about the motivation, I'm going to be diving into that uh, and talking about that in the next episode. So last question, in what ways do you foster a positive team environment and do you include your athletes in its creation? Can you give an example of rituals or traditions that would define your team culture now or one you've had in the past? I'm trying to think of one that was legal. Um, <laughs> let me see. Um, I think what, I mean, I think the involving the athletes mm-hmm. um, on some level is maybe not for all yeah. rituals or all traditions, but certainly for some is, is fun. That would, that, that's, that's a good way to, you know, get them to set the tone. The more, the more this, the more the athlete sets the tone for whatever it is we're going to be doing um, the better. It's the one I'm going to give you one example of this. And this to me is an example of positive team culture. This is not a, and it is an example of tradition, I guess as well. This, I was um, working with, um, uh, I was watching a practice that Russ Rose was conduct. Russ Rose is the head volleyball coach at Penn state. They're, they're traditionally a, a very, very a top 10 volleyball team won national championships on uh, many occasions and uh, not top 10 this year. But so anyway, and Russ and I have known each other for a hundred years and he, uh, Penn state was at GW and they were practicing before a contest. This was after I was no longer coaching at GW, but so I was just on the court. I was talking to Russ and his, um, his team was doing a particularly difficult drill uh, and that required them to execute uh, three or four things in a row before they could move on, before they could rotate and do it in a next position. So they would, uh, it was a very difficult, very difficult thing. And a drill that under many circumstances, a coach would say, um, a coach would run that drill and a coach would be making the determination of, of how, of whether or not the team had executed well enough to be able to move on, to be able to go to the next rotation. And uh, Russ had this, Russ had the athletes doing that. So the athletes were making a determination about whether or not they had executed well enough. And this was a subjective thing. This wasn't lots of, in volleyball, lots of times the, the, the drill ends uh, when the ball goes down. Yeah. You know, ball hit the floor. Okay, we get to go on and do the next one. Ball hit the floor. We get to go on and do the next one. Yeah. And, uh, but this was an execution. This was a, did we, did we, uh, did we cover the block well enough? Were we in good enough positions, whether or not the ball went where it was supposed to go? Yeah. Did we subjectively, were we in the, were we in the best positions we could possibly be? Mm-hmm. And the, and the athletes were frequently saying, even though the ball went down, we were not where we were supposed to do. We, you know, we lucked out. They were making their own decisions about whether or not they had executed well enough. It would be in swimming. It would be a little bit like saying, you know, in a particular set, um, yeah, you, you know, you were, you hit the mark. You, you know, you hit your, you, you repeated, you were repeating whatever it was on a specific time interval and you hit that mark every single time you did. Was that hard enough? Was that good enough? Was that good enough for you to move on? Could you have done any better? Mm-hmm. What would you have said to yourself? Could would you say, 
you know, I, I, I did it. I did the very, very best I could do. Or would you say, would you say to the coach, I'd like to do that again because I know I can do better. Yeah. And that was a, that was the, that was, that's a part of team culture that I think is uh, an interesting one to develop mm-hmm. that to say to the, have the athletes say to the coach, we can do better. Let us do that again. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That's all of the questions You're welcome. I have Good. for you today. I really appreciate you being here on the podcast and taking the time out of your day to talk with me. As I'm looking- thank you so much for listening to the co-op today. If you would like to learn more, please join me next week. I hope everyone has a great day. Bye. Thank you.